Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. All right, so as we jump in, we're in part three of our series called New Normal, and really it's part 16 of a series in the entire Gospel of Mark. Uh, And we've kind of transitioned to the first half of the Gospel of Mark was all about who Jesus is, and the second part is how we live in light of Jesus, which is kind of a play on words of what I hear everybody saying now is that we live in a new normal. And really that's what Jesus came. He came to bring a new normal for us to live in, that the kingdom of God is here And we now get to live in light of that kingdom, following Jesus, and there's a new way in which we live. And we're entering a section now in chapter 9 through chapter 11 where uh, Jesus is really talking about how to accept the faith of Christ. We have to be like children. And today, really, to understand the wrath of God, we have to understand how Jesus sees us. And that's he sees us as children of God. Now, why are we compared to children Uh, as Christians. And really the answer is probably not something you're going to like to hear. And that is we have to be completely dependent upon Jesus, which is what we looked at last week, that in the presence of God, we have to be completely dependent upon Jesus. But also in our everyday life, we have to depend on Jesus in everything we do. If we are going to be the type of people who follow after Jesus in our everyday, all the time kind of life. And Jesus says, in fact, as he's going to continue to play this out, we have to be like children and not like grown children, but like infants. I don't know if you guys have met very many babies, but they don't do much for themselves, right? And, and they, they come and they come completely dependent upon you. If you are a parent, you know that your kid is uh, not going to feed themselves. They can't even hardly go to sleep by themselves. And they have to even have their diaper changed. Otherwise, they'll set in their filth. And this is literally like the picture Jesus is painting. And what we see in this very first section is that Jesus is telling us very clearly that if we're going to love him, we have to love those who also love him. That if we are going to be children of Christ ourselves, then we have to love the other children of Christ in a way. And, he, and here's why Jesus' wrath comes out in such detail, and that is because of his love. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says that anger is what bleeds when love is cut. Such a beautiful picture of what's going on in this text. That, that when you love something and it is taken away from you, the natural result is anger. And often when we think of the wrath of God, we think of like a, a father who's out of control or an egomaniac. Um, and, and honestly, it's because it was probably presented to us like that in a lot of ways. And I've told you guys before, uh, I grew up in, in a church just right down the street where there was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, and I love that church, by the way. But there's a Sunday school teacher who literally scared the hell out of me when I was about six years old. Like she looked at me and, and said, Uh, Something along the lines of, you know, we're coming to the end of the class. And she gathered us all together and said, now, do you you guys want to go to heaven with Jesus and your mom and dad? Or do you want to burn the pits of hell forever? It's like, I'm small, but I'm not stupid. You know, (laughs) sign me up for that heaven thing because I don't want to go there. And, And for a lot of us, like that's our image of God and hell. Like it's like if I'm doing the right things, then I go to heaven. And if I make God mad, uh oh, he's going to pour out his wrath upon me because he's just waiting for me to mess up in that kind of way. And really the picture we get of Jesus here in this text is not that at all. That his wrath is because of his love. It's, it's, it's not a wrath. I love the way Dallas Willard says it. He says, uh, somebody asked him, how can you uh, like help me with God's wrath? You talk all the, way, all the time about God's love. How can God's wrath make sense? And he says, he sits there and he pauses for a minute and he says, if God is wrathful, he does it very calmly. 
And I love the way that picture looks. Now, we don't see a calm Jesus here. We see Jesus talking about a millstone and throwing people into the lake. But what is behind that is Jesus' wrath is always justified. There is always a reason for it. So as we walk into this text, I'm just going to go through it line by line. I think it will be better that way for all of us if I just let Jesus speak for himself. And we will, uh, we will see why the wrath of God is important. And also, the, the, really, the, the main thing that I want to accomplish today is show you why it's vital for you to be a part of a church. Now, when I say church, I don't mean it's, it's vital for you to go to an event on Sunday. I don't mean necessarily that it's vital for you to be a member of a certain local church. But what I mean is you cannot follow Jesus without the church, the people of God. You have to be a part of a community for it to work. And what Jesus is actually going to do for us is he's going to bring up, I think, three of the most common excuses I get for people who tell me why they're not a part of a church community. So as we jump in, we're going to look at that. And we're also going to learn about the wrath of God along the way. Now, verse 30 is where we start. It says this, it says, then they left that place, they being the disciples. Remember last week we had the transfiguration and then we had uh, the healing of a, of a boy who was possessed by a demon. So the disciples, all 12 of them kind of leaving with their tails tucked because they couldn't cast out the demon. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. It says they left that place and made their way through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. Now, the reason Jesus didn't want anyone to know that they were going through Galilee is because of the very next thing. Verse 31, it says, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. Now, the reason they didn't understand the statement and the reason they were afraid to ask him is because they didn't want to understand the statement, which is what we saw last week. The disciples are still trying to go around, over, and above suffering instead of going directly through it with Jesus. They're like, no, Jesus, we don't want you to die and be betrayed. We just want you to be the king right now. Just set everything up the way it's supposed to be so we don't have to go through any more suffering. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The pathway to life with me is the pathway through suffering. Then it says this, it says, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? And then it says this, but they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. I just love that section of scripture. Jesus like totally calls them out. They're arguing on the way. Uh, they think, you know, Jesus doesn't hear us. We're talking about who, how we think we're great. And then Jesus waits till they get all the way to where they're going. And he says, now, what were you guys arguing about on the road? Reminds me of like a, a mother move. I don't know. Like it's, it's like times where my mom just knew things were going on. And I was like, how do you even know what happened? You have eyes and ears everywhere. And that's kind of, kind of what we have here. Jesus is a lot like our mother. Uh, verse 34, it says, but they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And he says this, he pulls him around, he sits down in the middle, he says, guys, come on, gather around. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. Now, I love Jesus there because he doesn't condemn them for wanting to be great, right? Like, like a lot of people think when you come into Christianity, it's just a life of lowly submission and I'm just supposed to be last in everything I do and I can't, if I try to go for greatness, then I'm not humble. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, you can go be great, but I'm going to redefine greatness. There's a new way of being great. Great is going down, not going up. Great is not using power for your benefit, money for your benefit, life for your benefit, but it's for the benefit of others. 
And Jesus also says here that in my terms of greatness, there's not a second, third, fourth, or fifth place. The way we all become great is by helping each other become more great. See, in our world, we have a very scarce mindset. Like if you're coming to my church, then you can't go to that church. Or if you have this amount of money, then that means that person can't have that amount of money. And so we think we've got to be in competition with everybody. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works in my kingdom. The way you succeed in my kingdom is actually by helping everybody. We all win together. And then in this, he shows them an illustration of this. It says he took a child who we'll find out later is representative of those who follow Jesus. It's how we come to Jesus, completely dependent upon him. He took a child and had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes or receives one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. This leads me to my first excuse that I hear when people say, hey, like I'm not really a part of a church. They say, I'm not a part of a church because I don't need a church to know God. I don't need a church to know God. I can know God wherever I am. I don't need to be a part of a church. I can watch church on TV. I can, uh, you know, I can see God out in nature. And I want to say yes and amen to all of that, that yes, there is a personal aspect to our faith, that there is a personal aspect in which you can know God individually. But Jesus says here that the way that we actually know him and experience him is by welcoming, by receiving children, by receiving those who are like Christ, that, that, Actually, what Jesus would say is that if you want to experience the presence of God all the more. Now, if your goal is is yourself and and you want to advance your own life and you want to do what you want to do, then actually church will probably slow you down because you'll have people and people slow us down. But he says, if your goal is to know more of me, experience more of me, then you're going to have to do it in a community of people, in a family of missionary servants. This is the way that it actually plays out. And that's not just my words. 1 John 4, 11, 12 says this. It says, my dear, dear friends, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. Talking about the church. No one has ever seen God ever. But if we love one another, God dwells deeply within us and his love becomes compelled in us. Perfect love. Where does the love of God dwell? It's within his people. Some people say to me, Blake, I just not really experiencing the presence of God right now in my life. Or it feels like God's far away. One of my first questions is, is are you in the people of God? Because it's in the people of God that the body of Christ is actually felt. That's why it's literally called the body of Christ. So we all come together as one and we experience the presence of God. It's why Jesus says when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. You feel all alone? Well, is it because you're all alone? Or are you within the body that Jesus has said, this is where my presence is? This past week, we uh, have been praying together every morning at six in the morning. And uh, I know some of you are like, six in the morning exists on the clock. Uh, we have coffee there uh, for, for people who aren't fasting from coffee, which if you're fasting from coffee, that's, that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> coffee comes from heaven. We need, we need all the coffee we can get. But we come at six in the morning. We've been praying for an hour. And uh, I can tell you, and I bet anybody who's come to our, our prayer meetings would tell you as well, that the presence of God is felt in that place. That, that within each other, as we pray for one another, as we pray out loud, that there is something overwhelming about God's presence in that place. One hour feels like 15 minutes. That's what everybody has said who's been with us this week. Why? Well, because God's presence is with his people. So, like, I don't go to church because I can know God without the church. Absolutely, I think that's true. But you're never going to fully know God unless you're within the church. Not going to church, but being a part of a church, being a part of a people. 
And as we read on, we see why so often we really don't want to be a part of a church. Verse 38, Jesus says this. He says, whoever receives them receives me. If you want more of God, then you got to receive these people. That something about the way I love my brother or my sister in Christ is actually me in a way loving Jesus. It's, it's there. Verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. So their, their disciples are out getting some fish or bread or whatever they're doing. And uh, they see this other person using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And John says, whoa, hang on. You have not been authorized by us. Right? Like, you haven't got the franchise tag to be doing this. I was up on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. I know you should have got this checked off by somebody before you can do it. Right? And so John's standing here before Jesus. John's real proud of himself. Hey, Jesus, uh, we stopped somebody trying to do a miracle in your name. And then Jesus says this. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon speak afterwards, speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. See, John didn't really care about the message of Jesus. What did he care about? So they weren't following us. They weren't following us. We're supposed to be the greatest, right, Jesus? It's supposed to be about us. And friends, this is honestly the reason why people say, I don't need a church, and they walk away from church. It's because of pride. James in the New Testament says uh, that the root of all of our problems, the root of all of our divisions is pride. That for every person who has gone to church for a while and stopped going, been a part of a church for a while, and then stopped interacting with that community, it's almost always because they were offended or they were hurt by somebody else. And look, I want to say from the bottom of my heart, church hurt is real. This is a place you can heal. There are times in which it is time to go from a church. But there are different reasons in which you should not leave a church. That there are different reasons in which we must bear with one another. And honestly, sometimes the reason we leave a community is not because of what they are doing, but because of how they are doing it. Things aren't going the way we think they ought to go. We're not pursuing great. They're not pursuing what we would define as greatness in our definition. And so we walk away from the community. And Jesus says, no, that if they're doing it in my name, then they are on team Jesus. If they're not against us, they are for us. Now, in other places in Scripture, Jesus and Matthew, he says uh, the exact opposite of this. He says, if, they are, uh, if they're not for us, then they are against us. The difference here is that this guy was doing it in the name of Christ. Right? So under the banner of Christianity, there are people who are working for Jesus, and we all do it different ways. Right now, we're doing something different than the church down the road at First Baptist Woodward is doing. And there's a, another church uh, in Oregon doing something different than the way we're doing it. And we would do things differently, and they would do things differently. But ultimately, we're all a part of the body of Christ. And Jesus says that we shouldn't try to elevate our way of doing things over the unity of the body. In fact, what happens throughout Scripture is Jesus, the New Testament, the New Testament writers, all value unity more than anything else. In fact, what I find interesting is churches almost always split over how something is done, or people leave the church because they're offended over how something was done, and they think that their beliefs are the best beliefs, and they think they're standing up for God by causing disunity, when in reality, the New Testament would say the biggest sin there is, is to cause disunity amongst God's people. Let's read a couple of the verses. 1 Corinthians 1.10 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. First Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Philippians 2, 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Colossians 3.14, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Psalm 133.1, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Or 2 Corinthians 13.11, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another. I agree, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. What breaks my heart is often when somebody hurts us, we don't go for restoration. We just completely separate. And, and I understand that people can hurt us. And I understand things happen in life. I understand that sometimes people get on your nerves. And yet if we don't try to go for restoration, we're not benefiting them and we're not benefiting ourselves. I was reading an article this last week about how in our country we're more divided than ever because instead of actually trying to communicate with one another, what we do is we just find people who believe like we believe and we completely ignore the other side. And this article said what used to happen in our society that would keep us together is you had to talk to people you disagreed with. And by talking to them, you kind of pushed them away from their ledge. And by them talking to you, they kind of pushed you away from your ledge. And we had this kind of tension that held us together. But now we disagree with people. We just talk to people who we agree with and we are so far apart that it's impossible to find unity. And as I read that, I was thinking about our country, but more so I was thinking about the church. I was thinking about the church of Jesus Christ, how we have over a thousand denominations. Why? Well, because we have pride. And, and this is not Blake preaching at you. This is uh, what God's doing in Blake's heart this week. I was convicted of my own life. I've been a part of two churches before this, and I was deeply convicted over my arrogance and my pride that had led me to think I was better or greater than somebody else and pushing against the unity. And I've always found it helpful, and I think this would be helpful for you too, as you're you're concerning your pride and you're saying, Blake, is this really an issue to leave over, or is this uh, a reason to not be in the church community? Uh, I think there's green light, yellow light, and red light issues. And whenever you're in a church community and you're thinking about leaving a church community, the green light issues mean we disagree, but we can stay in community together. So these are just differences in opinion on how the music should be played. It's a difference of opinion. And, you know, I don't really like a pastor who wears skinny jeans, but I could listen to him. Uh, Or maybe you're like, pastor looks like he's 12 years old, but that's okay. These are all green light issues. We could stay in community together over these issues. Uh, maybe difference in political views, whatever it might be. Those simple things that we just, we need to bear with one another on those things. And it's tough, it's difficult, but we as a family are covenanted together. So that's what we're going to do. The next one is a yellow light issue, which is we are brothers and sisters in Christ, but being together because of some different beliefs we have would be almost impossible. So this is kind of some theological issues where like somebody believes, hey, I believe infants should be baptized. And somebody else believes, I believe baptism is only for adults. Well, we're still brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, but it's going to be hard for us to gather together when you want to baptize babies and I'm trying to pull the baby away from you so it's not baptized, right? It's just awkward for everybody. Uh, or other, there's other theological beliefs that cause us to, we love each other, but we can't actually be together. These are what we call open-handed issues, right? Like you can be a Christian and believe about a thousand different things on a thousand different things and still be called a Christian, but it might not mean that we need to be together. And the last one is the red light issues. 
And these are, uh, honestly, these are the, the times where it's like, okay, we need to leave this situation and leave it fast. It's the toxic situations. Uh, there are the, the things like church abuse. Uh, there are things like, um, uh, really, it gets almost cultish, which is why it's so much hard for people to even get their way out of these things because they don't even see it. But when the, when the leader is domineering over the people and not for their good, but for his good, and he is trying to get them to do things he wants them to do, and they're supposed to follow him above following Jesus, those kind of situations. And then there are just theological things that make us Christians. And Jesus talks about this. Like there are a few handful things that we call closed handed things that if you don't believe these things, you're not in the same faith I am. And I know in our pluralistic society, that's very hard to hear, but it just makes sense. And Jesus preaches it all the time that two truths cannot coexist if they are going the opposite direction. And there are a few truths that hold us as Christians together. Number one, that Jesus is divine, that he is God. That Jesus is the atonement for the sin of the world. That he came and he died for our sins. He really did that and he really resurrected. Those are some of the most basic things that we must believe to hold us together. And if not, then we're not actually in the same community. And that would fall under Matthew 6 where Jesus says, if they're not for us, they're against us. That all truth would ultimately point to Jesus. Not that we can't learn from other faiths or that we shouldn't be welcoming of other faiths, but that to be in the faith of Jesus, we must hold on to some of these strong core values of what it means to be a Christian following Jesus Christ. So that's number one. I don't need the church to know God. And really John Piper, I think, sums it up the best. He says it comes down to this. This is, this is the source of our pride. If you are receiving the kingdom yourself like a little child, in other words, you're coming to Jesus completely dependent upon him. Jesus, I don't know what I don't know. I know that without you, I can't do it. I don't have it all figured out, but I trust in you. If you're coming to Jesus like that, then you will not do anything to hinder little children from coming to Jesus. Who am I to judge when I myself am coming to Jesus like a little child? But if you are trying to enter the kingdom some other way than by receiving it like a child, then you will probably be a hindrance to children. If you are not childlike toward God, children will probably be beneath you and not worth your time. And that's really the root of it all, friends. We think people we disagree with are beneath us and not worth our time. I would just encourage you, if you're here today and you're struggling with that, to strive for unity. To the best of your ability, may there be peace among us. At Ascent, may there be peace among us as a greater church community outside of Ascent. Now, as we continue, we're going to see what does make Jesus very, very angry. Verse 42. Jesus uh, really turns up the heat here on us. But whoever causes one of these little ones, one of the disciples of Jesus, who believes in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. I almost feel like you got to say hell, like hell. Give it the real force there. Uh, and if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to fall away. Uh, it is better for you to fall away than enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What is making Jesus so angry here? Well, it's love. It's love. We get wrathful over the things that we love. For instance, uh, I, I love the Blocker family. I love Jen, uh, Madison, Chad, Allison, and Emerson. 
They are a great family in our church. But something tells me that Jen Blocker would never come back to a sin if I pulled her into my office one day and I said, Hey, Jen, I love you guys. I love your family. I really do. Uh, the only thing is, is I hate Emerson. I hate your youngest daughter. I just hate the way she looks at me. I don't know. It's too cute. Uh, and so the rest of your family is welcome at a sin. Please come. We love you guys. But Emerson, I can't stand Emerson. Something tells me Jen's going to say, you don't love us if you don't love Emerson. You, you can't love somebody while hating the thing that is most important in their life. It's, it's an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. If I say, I, I love everything about you except for the thing that is most important to you, I don't really love you, do I? And, and you parents will know. The thing that will give people the most credit in your eyes is when they not love you, but they love your children. Like, you, you love people who support your children, uplift your children, because you value your children that much. And Jesus is saying, any of you who cause one of my little ones, one of my children to stumble away from me, it is better for you to put a millstone around your neck right now and be thrown into a lake. Because when you get to me, it's not going to be good. You're going to see Papa Bear come out. See, here we see the love of Jesus. We see a king who came to die for these people, to come and live the life they couldn't live, take nine-inch nails through both of his wrists, and bleed and die so that they might be right with God. That's how much he loves his little ones. And those who would get in the way of those little ones and him, those are the ones that face the wrath of God. And there's not a parent in this room who doesn't understand what I'm saying. Like, you didn't think it was possible to kill until you had a child. Then you're like, if somebody touched that kid... I could probably go to prison for that. And Jesus has that same kind of wrath over this. And by the way, if Jesus didn't have this wrath, if a parent didn't have this wrath, we would think something was wrong, not with the, not with the kid, but with the parent. Right? Like if I came in and your kid is, is there in the, in the living room and I came and I kicked your kid and you said, oh, that's cool. I wanted him out of the way anyways. <laughs> Something's wrong with you. Because there should be wrath. There should be anger over those things you love. It's the same with God's jealousy as it's mentioned in the scripture. God's a jealous God. I don't really like a jealous God. Yes, you do if it's the right kind of jealousy. Like if my wife is going out with other guys and I'm not jealous, something's wrong with me. Because I love her. She's mine. Not in an ownership type of sense, but you know what I mean. Had to clarify there. She's mine. I'm hers. It goes both ways. But she, she's got Farley last name. We, un, we are united in one. And I don't want anything to come in between that. And God's the same way with us. He loves his church. And so there's, yes, there's a jealousy because it's best for his church to be connected to him. And this leads me to reason number two that people often say that they, uh, they don't want to go to church. They say, I don't need church to love God. I don't need church to love God. Which just doesn't make sense because as I'm saying right now, how can you love something but not love the thing that's most important to them? In fact, this isn't just my logic. In 1 John 4.20, it says this. It says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he can see, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. If I say I love you and I hate your children, do you believe me? In the same way, so many of us think, I can love God and hate his church people. That just doesn't make sense. That's your brother and your sister. That to love God is to love one another. Yeah, but they're really weird and they're odd and they frustrate me. I, I know. <laughs> Trust me. I work in the church. I've seen it all. I promise you. 
But I'm called to love them. Why? Because he first loved me. Has nothing to do with what you do to me. The reason I love you is because Jesus loved me first. And loving means bearing with one another. It's one of those wedding verses where we talk about what love is. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love is uh, forbearing with one another. We say that before a wedding, but really in the context, it was about the church. Like we need that verse for one another. That I have to remember and forgive you based upon how Jesus has forgiven me. Because that's actually how I love God. I love God by loving you. Now, the final thing I hear is people say, I can do life without the help of others. I can do life without the help of others. I know the church is great for those who are weak. They need a place to go. But I'm good, Blake. Like, honestly, I can listen to a podcast. I'm great on my own. I don't need the church family. And I would just say, well, maybe you think that. But Jesus seems to disagree with you because he says this in verse 48. Or verse 49, rather, in 50. It says, for everyone will be salted with fire. In other words, everybody's going to go through suffering. Then it says this, salt is good, but if salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? In other words, what salt does is it it doesn't actually bring flavor by itself. It's supposed to bring out the flavor of what's in there. So like in your suffering, you're all going to suffer. I just want to let you know right now, it's not if, it's when. You're going to go through a dark valley. The question is, is will you grow from it? Will you get better or will you grow bitter? And Jesus says, that there is salt that will bring out the bitterness in you, but if it loses its flavor, then it'll just be suffering for the sake of suffering, which is not good for any of us. So how do we keep the salt in it? How do we not dilute the salt? Well, Jesus says this next. He says, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. In the Old Testament in Leviticus Salt represented the covenant of God, the promise of God. That we are coming into this thing together and we're not going to let go of each other. And Jesus says, if you want to have the salt of your suffering not be wasted, if you want it to make you more mature, make you better, then you're going to have to be connected with other people. And, And not after the suffering begins, but before the suffering begins. You have to be connected with one another and be at peace, which means wholeness, shalom with each other. And see, the beautiful part of Jesus calling it salt is that we covenant together. This is why marriage, when it works the way it's supposed to, is so great. Because marriage is supposed to be a covenant, which means, you know, the vows we say, for better, for worse, in sickness or in health, we're actually supposed to mean those things. Because in a covenant like that, we can actually have room to grow and make mistakes with one another. Marriage is basically me looking at Taylor, Taylor definitely looking at me and saying, I know you're messed up and you're probably more messed up than what I even know right now because I'm about to start living with you. And yet, I love you. I'm in this with you. And you know what happens when both people have that kind of problems for one another? There's a grace in which you can grow with one another. I don't have to hide things from Taylor. She doesn't have to hide things from me because we've covenanted together. She can make a mistake without having to worry about me packing up the truck and leaving. And you see, part of the reason marriages are so broken today and why almost half of them end in divorce is because really when we say our vows, we say, for better, for worse, unless it gets too bad. And sickness or health, unless you get too sick. And and God says, no, that's not the way marriage is supposed to be. Marriage, by the way, is a picture between church and Jesus. And in the church, we are to covenant together as well. For better or for worse, I'm in this with you. Now, I've already said there's, there's reasons why we might back out of a church, but overall, those reasons should be very minuscule. We are in a covenant together. We love one another. We need one another. It's why God calls us a body. 
We work together. I need you. You need me. Some of us are an eyeball. We can't see without the eye. Some of us are an appendix. We have no idea what it does. It just causes problems. But it's there. And I wonder if part of the reason why we have churches on every corner, but we're so impotent at what we do is because the body doesn't act like the body. It's because we come and we're disconnected. Our hand fights against our mouth. Our lungs fight against our heart. There's parts of our body that don't even show up. We're missing our toes. And can you imagine if 98% of your body wasn't active? You'd be dead. Can you imagine if 50% of your body wasn't active? You'd look really weird and not be able to walk very well. And yet Jesus says, no, and this thing works. We all are in it together. We're working together. I trust you. You trust me. And we bear with one another. You do need a church to grow in God. You do need a church to have life together. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to launch uh, our small groups. And I really think small groups are where this happens. Like it doesn't happen coming on Sunday. That's important. We gather together as a family. But where life really happens together is when you got two or three guys or two or three girls and they know things about you that nobody else knows. That when you're on a, when you join together on a Monday morning and you've had a terrible week, you have somebody to talk to and walk you off the ledge. When your marriage isn't the way it's supposed to be, you have somebody to help you try to make it healthier. Somebody there just to listen and encourage you, not to give you advice or preach at you, but to do life with you. This is where it really happens, my friends. You cannot do life alone, so don't do it alone. You are given the church as a gift. See, people see the church as a duty. God, I have to go to the church. No, God gave you the church to help you. It is his gift to us. And I'm sorry, the guys like me have made it a duty where it's all about what happens on Sunday. But that's not the way it was intended to be. It was intended to be all of life as a family living together. I got to experience the joy of this a couple days ago. Taylor and I came into Carlito's, a nice restaurant here in town. We're going to get breakfast and uh, Cheryl and Michael Barco were sitting next to us, right across from us. And uh, Cheryl and Michael uh, actually bought our breakfast, which was an amazing blessing. But I was just thinking as I was looking around, I saw a whole bunch of other people. And I thought, how cool is it that we can walk into a restaurant and we see people that we know and love us? And I was just thinking how lonely some people must feel to not have that. Yeah. So this is why I always ask when somebody loses a loved one, I say, did your loved one go to church. And I think they're thinking, is he asking that so he knows whether or not they're in heaven or hell? It's not what I'm asking. I ask that because I want to know if they have a support group of people around them. If they're involved in a church family, then I know that family is being well cared for. Because I know if they're operating like a church family is supposed to, that there's already going to be four or five casseroles there before I could even arrive. And yet I also know that for those who have tried to do life on their own, when they need people the most, they find out that there's really nobody there. I'll end with this. Jen, you guys can go ahead and come up. 1 Peter 2.10, he says this. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Jesus came and he died for your sins. So I go to heaven when I die, right, Blake? Jesus came and he died for your sins so he could create a family. He could create a people. A people, a family of missionary servants who would live all of life together. And by the way, we are going to be spending eternity together. I don't know if that scares you or not, but you better start getting used to each other because we're going to be together for millions of years. I know I just scared some of you. Oh my gosh. See, quite honestly, we're going to be closer to our Christian brothers and sisters than we are actually our blood brothers and sisters, our blood family. 
Some of them we will not be united with for all of eternity. But every single one of our Christian brothers and sisters in the spiritual house, Jesus says, that is my true family. In fact, we saw earlier in the Gospel of Mark when people, his brothers and sisters came to him, as you would to your brother as well if he was calling himself God and walking around trying to get himself killed by the Roman authorities. And they say, Jesus, come home. Like, just kill this act. What's going on here? And Jesus looks at him and, and uh, he doesn't even let him in. He's got his people stopping him before they come in. And somebody comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, your brothers and your sisters are here for you. And Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters except those who do the will of God? I wouldn't recommend you say that to your family. But the point is, Jesus is saying, I have a new family. I have a spiritual family. I pray that my blood family is a part of the spiritual family with me. But my family, the one I'm doing life with, the one I'll do eternity with, is the family that was instituted by God through Jesus Christ. And the reason God's wrath is so relevant and real is because we are not just objects for him to either go to heaven or hell, but because we are his children. If you want to understand the wrath of God, look at the wrath of a mama or a daddy because that's exactly who Jesus is. That's exactly who God is over his children. He loved you enough, my friends, to come and die for your sins so that you might have a life of freedom and joy, restoration and wholeness. I want to pray for us. Father, thank you for this church family. Thank you, God, that we get to covenant together, that we get to be with each other for better or for worse, that Lord, our love for one another is patient and it's kind and it's forbearing. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen that love for us and strengthen the love for those people outside of the church. Let us be people who receive your little children instead of trying to make them stumble. God, give us a heart of humility so that we might pursue true greatness. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, if you would, let's stand and sing. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.